Good afternoon. It is a joy to be here today. Such a blessing that we're able to, to come together as brethren, as the, the family uh, of God, to, to worship our Father, uh, to remember the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. If you will open up your Bibles to Numbers 25, if they're not already open there, we're going to be focusing uh, on this passage and, and one other throughout our study today. In, in my personal Bible reading uh, this past week, I, I just finished the book of Numbers. And, and the book of Numbers has a, a variety of, of challenging lessons that we can learn, stories that instruct us on how God dealt with his people through the wilderness. Even as we've studied Hebrews in chapter 3 and chapter 4, we see that the Hebrew writer harkens back to the events of the wilderness wandering to warn us and exhort us in our faith to God. But as I read through the book of Numbers, one passage that really stood out to me uh, and challenged me is what is said of Phineas here uh, in verse 11. Numbers 25 and verse 11, it says, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned away my wrath from the sons of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not destroy the sons of Israel in my jealousy. He was jealous with my jealousy. Or some versions might say he was zealous with my zeal. Those words uh, in the Hebrew are, are very closely related, or rather our two English words, jealous and, and zeal, are very closely related. Uh, Philip Shoemake defines this word as a desire on fire, uh, a, a passion. He was passionate with my passion. I think when we examine ourselves, when we look at ourselves, we need to ask ourselves, am I passionate with God's passion? Am I zealous with God's zeal? Do I feel the same way that God feels about sin, about his people, about our relationship with him? And Phineas is a challenging character for us in that regard. I, I want to look at two stories in the life of Phineas. Really, we only have two events recorded for us in Phineas's life. We, we see some other details in Chronicles. We've seen that Phineas was among the, the temple guard. We can understand why when we read this story. But two main stories are revealed to us in Phineas's life, one here in Numbers 25 and the other in Joshua 22. And what they show us is what this statement says in verse 11. What they show us is his zeal for the Lord, both in his zeal or his passion for purity in this passage, and I think we'll see in Joshua 22, his passion for peace. And I think sometimes we, we might almost think that those two things don't quite go together. You, you look at what you see in Numbers 25, and you don't, this doesn't sound like a very peaceful individual. When his passion for the Lord, even going to the point of, of slaying this man and the Midianite woman, and yet we see that both a passion for purity and a passion for peace are evident within Phineas's life. And so uh, we need to ask ourselves, am I zealous with God's zeal? How do I match up when compared with this biblical example that is presented to us? First of all, let's look here in Numbers 25 and see this idea of a passion for purity. And we see, first of all, the seriousness of sin. Here in Numbers 25, if we want to get a little bit of context, you may remember earlier in Numbers the situation where King Balak of the Moabites sends for Balaam. 
And Balak is very afraid for his people, the people of Moab, because Israel has come up on the east side of the Jordan and they have conquered Sihon and Og. And Moab thinks we're next. We're going to get wiped out by this people. So they call Balaam, this prophet of the Lord, to come and curse the people of God. And if you remember the story, you know that Balaam, every time that he comes to to curse God's people, uh, blesses them and said that he can only speak that which God desires for him to speak. And yet, after three times, Balak wants Balaam to curse the people, and he blesses them instead. Finally, what we see, if we turn over to Numbers 31, in verse 16, we see Balaam again, and it says here in verse 16, it says, Behold, these, talking about the Moabites, caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor, so the plague was among the congregation of the Lord. Evidently, Balaam here, when he was not able to curse the people and please Balak in that way, counseled Balak instead to entice the people into sin, to entice them to commit sexual immorality and worship to Baal uh, with these Midianite women. And so we see uh, Israel sinning in this way. And the result of this is that God brings a plague upon the people. A plague that slays 24,000. You notice as we read earlier in verse 3 through 5, God's command to the people. It says, So Israel joined themselves to Baal Peor, and the Lord was angry against Israel. The Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the fierce anger of the Lord may be turned away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you slay his men who have joined themselves to Baal of Peor. Here we see the seriousness of sin. That God commands that the ones who have engaged in this sin should be killed, should be slain, and that God even himself slays 24,000 who have participated in this sin. And we might look at that and say, well, isn't that a little bit extreme? Well, yes, yes it is, and rightly so. Here, God commanded this because of the seriousness of sin. Sin has always demanded death, and an instance like this shows us sin from God's perspective. Even from the beginning, God told Adam and Eve that if they were to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, would cause death. In the flood, we see that sin demanded death death. We see in Sodom and Gomorrah, we see throughout the wilderness wandering, we see in the conquering of the land of Canaan, when the sin of the Amorite was full, God brought judgment upon them. And sometimes we look at those Old Testament passages and we uh, think, well, well, that, that's kind of extreme. Isn't that almost cruel that God would do such a thing? But when we see sin from God's perspective, we see the true seriousness and the damage that it causes to our souls. We can understand why such serious action was necessary. Turn for a moment to Deuteronomy 13. This is going to be a very challenging passage for us to consider. But remember our goal is to see sin from God's perspective. Is to have the jealousy of God's jealousy, the zeal of God's zeal. Here in Deuteronomy 13, starting in verse 6, notice God's command. 
about those who would turn away from the Lord and encourage others to do the same. It says in verse 6, if your brother, your mother's son, or your son or daughter, or the wife you cherish, or your friend who is as your own soul, entice you secretly, saying, let us go and serve other gods whom neither you nor your fathers have known. Of the gods of the peoples who are around you, near you, or far from you, from one end of the earth to the other end, you shall not yield to him or listen to him. And your eye shall not pity him, nor shall you spare or conceal him, but you shall surely kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterwards the hands of all the people. So you shall stone him to death, because he has sought to seduce you from the Lord your God, who brought you out from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Verse 11, then all Israel will hear and be afraid and will never again do such a wicked thing among you. It doesn't matter how close you were to an individual. It doesn't matter if it was your brother or sister. It doesn't matter if it was your own child. It doesn't matter if it was the wife that you cherished. Here, God said if they committed treason against their king and they encouraged others to do the same, that they were to be put to death. And today, when we look at something like that, we might think, well, you know, if, if, if I was alive back then, I never would have done that. This is God who has commanded us. The same God that we serve today. Granted, he works in a different way today. He has a different law for us today. But if we are going to have the zeal as God's zeal, the jealousy as God's jealousy, the passion that God has, we need to see sin the way that he sees it. We need to see the inexpressible damage that sin does to the soul. That it separates us from God. That it separates us eternally from God. We need to see the effect that it has on those around us. And just like in any nation where somebody committed treason against the king, they were worthy of death. This is Israel's king that we're talking about. And those who committed treason were worthy of death. And in verse 11, it says that others might see and be afraid. That we today might see and fear as well. And God, in asking us to have such an extreme view of the seriousness of sin, is not asking us to do anything that he was not willing to do himself. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. You might look at this and say, well, if I was alive back then, I never would have murdered my son. Well, God, because he knew the seriousness of sin, was willing to murder his own son so that we might be free from the effects of sin. If we want to see the seriousness of sin, all we need to do is look at the cross. See the damage that sin causes. And Jesus' hands nailed to that cross. And the crown of thorns upon his head. Sin is truly no laughing matter. The world around us today likes to make light of sin. If you look at any modern sitcom, before long you'll probably see uh, some humor that has to do with immorality. That is what society likes to laugh at, what society likes to entertain themselves with. 
what we sometimes entertain ourselves with. And yet to God, sin is horrific, is repugnant. Sin is something that demands death. But not only do we see the seriousness of sin in this passage, we see the sorrow over sin. In chapter 25, verse 6, at the end there, it says they were weeping at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Not only does sin stir up the the judicial wrath of God, it brings genuine sorrow to the heart of God. Not only should sin and its consequences produce fear within us, it should produce a genuine mourning. And not just the sorrow for the consequences of sin, but a sorrow for the spiritual and inward damage that sin causes within the heart. The damage that it causes to our souls and our relationship with God. This is something that God has tried to teach us throughout the scriptures. In Psalm 51, David, after his sin, writes in verse 17, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not decide. What God truly desires from us is not just some outward expression of remorse or restitution. What he wants is our hearts to be genuinely broken by sin. Just like the cross shows us the seriousness of sin, it shows us and motivates us to have the sorrow, the genuine sorrow that we should have over sin. Our sin is what put the nails into Jesus' hands. Our sin spat in his face. Our sin is what allowed his lifeblood to drain out upon the cross. And so our reaction when we think about sin is not that we laugh at it, not that we are entertained by it, not that we treat it lightly or or view it as something, well, you know, I, I messed up again. If we have God's view of sin, it needs to result in genuine mourning. Joel chapter 2, verse 12 and 13 says, Return to me with all your heart, and with fasting, weeping, and mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. Is that our reaction to sin? When was the last time that you genuinely mourned over your sin? That it brought you to tears because of what your sin had done against God? Have you been so sorrowful over sin that it has driven you to fasting? If we see sin as seriously as God sees it, we will have that type of sorrow. We won't be at a point where sin just simply doesn't phase us anymore. Sin should bring about a genuine mourning and weeping. James chapter 4 and verse 9 says, Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Sin tears up the heart of God. It needs to break our hearts as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 talks about this, this godly sorrow. And notice how he describes it here. This is not just a sorrow over the, the outward consequences of sin, but a, a Godward sorrow. He says in verse 10, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. 
but the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow, has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong, and everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. Brother, we need to have a genuine passion for purity. We need to have a genuine passion to remove this sin that has has done such great damage to God from our lives and from the lives of those around us. And if we do genuinely see sin the way that God sees it, if we mourn over sin the way that God mourns, it is going to motivate us to radical action to remove that sin from our midst. Back in Numbers chapter 25, Verse 7 and 8. We read, When Phinehas the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he arose from the midst of the congregation and took a spear in his hand. And he went after the man into the tent and pierced both of them through the man of Israel and the woman, through the body, so that the plague on the sons of Israel was checked. I want you to imagine this scene for just a moment. Here Israel has gone into sexual immorality and and Worship to other gods. And God has brought a plague upon the people. The plague is already killing people in their midst. Eventually we see that 24,000 have died by the point that Phineas takes this action. 24,000 people are dying. And God commands them to slaughter the leaders who have led them into this sin. And they are out before the tabernacle mourning and crying out to God over this sin. And all of a sudden, they see somebody walking with a Midianite woman very clearly going to commit this very act that has caused 24,000 people to die. How would we react? How should we react? Can you imagine in the heart of Phineas as he sees this act getting ready to take place, the passion, the zeal for him that this has caused all these people of the Lord to die. Not one more. We're going to remove this sin from our midst. And if we have that type of passion, that type of zeal, it is going to call radical action on our part. It is going to motivate us to do what is ever necessary as the Corinthians, what zeal, what vindication of wrong in overcoming this sin. And I think as we consider this, first of all, we have to apply it to our lives personally and how we react to our own sin. Galatians 5, verse 24 says, Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. Crucifixion is not a casual endeavor. Crucifixion hurts. Crucifixion is a a radical step that we are called upon to take in our spiritual life. That we are called to kill the old man. To put him to death. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And Paul there is not just describing him in his you know, great spiritual maturity being able to, to make this claim. Galatians 
5 would indicate to us that this is something that each and every one of us needs to be able to say. That all Christians have crucified the flesh. Any of us who want to be a disciple of Christ, we're told that we must deny self, take up our cross, and follow him. What does that mean? That means we murder the old man. That means we slaughter sin. Matthew chapter 5, verse 29 and 30. It says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it off and throw it away from you. That's the type of radical action that a genuine passion for our relationship with God is going to bring within our lives. We're not going to treat sin casually. We're not going to, you know, take easy steps to try to remove it from our life. We're going to take radical steps to remove it. And that not only applies, while it first of all needs to apply in my own life, we see here with Phineas, it applies to maintaining the purity of God's people. When I see that sin among my brethren is causing others to stumble, I have a responsibility to make sure that we eliminate that sin from the camp. We must not allow any sinful influence to persist and cause more destruction, spiritual destruction among God's people. And so the Bible talks about in 1 Corinthians 5 and Matthew 18 and elsewhere uh, the idea of church discipline, of withdrawal. And some people look at that and they say, well, that's unloving. That's unloving to, to remove somebody from your midst because of some sin that they're involved in. Now, very clearly, when we see these passages in the Scripture, we're not talking about those who are actively struggling against a sin. Those people we strengthen, we help, we support, we encourage. But when somebody persists in sin and is unwilling to take the necessary steps to remove it from their life, the Bible talks very clearly about us taking action to remove that sinful influence from among us. Second um, Timothy chapter 2 and verse 17 Talking about Hymenaeus and Philetus, it says their talk will spread like gangrene. Many of you may have met at one time or another my younger brother, Andrew. Um, Andrew has one arm. And the reason he has one arm is because when he was a small child in, in Siberia, we uh, adopted him from an orphanage in Russia, he got a shot with an infected needle and developed gangrene. Now what do you do in a case like that, when, when you don't have the medicine necessary to, to prevent such a thing from happening? What needs to take place? What would you say, well, you know, we, we don't want to amputate because that would do great damage. You know, that, that would hurt. Um, that, that's going to influence his life for years to come. Brother, if you don't cut it off, the entire body is going to die. When we recognize the seriousness of sin, the destructive influence that it has in our relationship with God, we can't just sit by idly and let it persist. We have to take radical action to remove it and its influence from our lives and from among God's people. Yes, it may be painful and difficult, but we have to do whatever is necessary to maintain the spiritual well-being of the body. And so, brethren, if we 
have a zeal as God's zeal, uh, a passion as God's passion, we are going to recognize the seriousness of sin, the damage that it causes in our relationship with God, and we're going to do whatever is necessary to remove it uh, from our lives. But I want us to consider one other story in the life of Phineas, and that's in Joshua 22. Here in Joshua 22, we see Phineas addressing another situation um, where sin and division is threatening God's people. In Joshua 22, uh, the book of Joshua talks a lot about the division of the promised land. And if you remember, uh, Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh settled on the east side of the Jordan River. Uh, and so they had a natural barrier between them and the rest of God's people. And so in Joshua 22, we see that these eastern tribes set up an altar, evidently along the bank of the Jordan River, and the other tribes of Israel see this altar, uh, evidently from, from across the uh, Jordan River, and they think that these eastern tribes are setting up an altar uh, to make sacrifices in replacement of the altar before the tabernacle, to make uh, another unauthorized altar um, that that God uh, against God's will here. And so we see in verse 12, it says, When the sons of Israel heard of it, the whole congregation of the sons of Israel gathered themselves at Shiloh to go up against them and war. And in verse 13, guess who is leading? Phineas. We see again his, his passion for the purity of God's people and leading this party against the eastern tribes. But what we see is when they get over across the Jordan River to confront these other tribes, they don't come in with swords swinging. And verse 16 says, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What is this unfaithful act which you have committed against the God of Israel, turning away from following the Lord this day by building yourselves an altar to rebel against this Lord, uh, the Lord this day? Is not the iniquity of Peor enough for us, from which we have not cleansed ourselves to this day, although a plague came on the congregation of the Lord, that you must turn away this day from following the Lord? If you rebel against the Lord today, you will be angry. He will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel tomorrow. And so here, Phineas leading this uh, group of warriors uh, over to the eastern tribes, he doesn't begin uh, by attacking. He begins by confronting, by confronting them with what they perceive to be a sin against God. We see that his rebuke is very blunt and straightforward, they are bold and unwavering about what they are prepared to do to maintain the unity of God's people and the purity of God's people. Would this be us? How, how do you think that we would react if such a uh, situation arose? I, I'm afraid sometimes we might be the people on the other side of the river who see the altar being erected and we say, we go to our neighbor and say, did you hear about that altar over there that, that so-and-so put up? And then if we ever did work up the courage to go over and to talk to the other tribes, we might come over kind of shuffling our feet and say, uh, 
What are you guys doing? What's going on? Phineas addresses it very directly. He addresses exactly what's going on here. Uh, This is causing a rift among God's people. You are setting up some unauthorized altar here, and if you are not willing uh, to, to change, then we are going to have to take action. He's very blunt and straightforward. Because, brethren, the cure to division, the cure to things that are causing a rift among God's people is not avoidance. Time does not heal all wounds. We must take have the, the courage and the boldness to address that division, address that rift so that it might be mended. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 5 and 6 says, Better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. A true friend will be more concerned about the long-term spiritual well-being of our brethren than any temporary hurt or awkwardness that addressing uh, some division or some conflict may cause. Certainly we need to use tact and gentleness, showing genuine love and concern. But there is time that addressing sin and addressing conflict properly is going to involve open rebuke, that is going to uh, involve uh, wounds even. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. We we see in Galatians chapter 2, you remember when Peter was acting in such a way to, to divide God's people, when he was eating with the Greeks uh, when nobody else was around. But then when some men from the Jews came, he stopped eating from the Greeks and caused this division among them that Paul takes very drastic action to address this division head on. Um, He doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't avoid this matter. He says in uh, Galatians chapter 2, I opposed him to the face because he stood condemned. He also says, when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all. Very clearly, there are passages in the scripture, such as Matthew 18, that would indicate to us that we need to approach somebody on an individual level about some conflict or some sin uh, that we are dealing with. And yet, there are times when this sin is already public and open, that it needs to be addressed in that way as well. But what we never see within the scriptures is that it's okay to go around talking to other people about it. Uh, Or that uh, it's okay to simply ignore the conflict or the sin among us. If we are going to maintain the purity and the peace of God's people, there are times that we need to directly address these matters. But as Phineas addresses this, in Joshua 22. Notice what he says then in verse 19. He says, If, however, the land of your possession is unclean, then cross into the land of the possession of the Lord where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or rebel against us by building an altar for yourselves besides the altar of the Lord our God. I want us to consider what this meant for the other tribes of Israel. What, what, what Phineas is suggesting here is he's saying if, you know, if, if this land over here is unclean, if it's going to cause you to turn away from the Lord, then 
all of you. Here we, we have two entire tribes, Reuben and Gad and a half tribe of Manasseh. He's saying, come over and take possession among us. That means somebody's going to have to make some room. <laughs> that means somebody's going to have to make some sacrifices. Somebody is going to have to, to open up some portion of their land to, to bring over these tribes. But that's exactly what Phineas is suggesting. If, if, if that's what it takes, then we will be willing to sacrifice whatever needs to be sacrificed in order to keep the unity of God's people. That needs to be our attitude, brethren. That rebuke is not an end within itself. It is a means towards an end. Church discipline is not an end within itself. The goal is to restore. And we should be willing to expend whatever resources possible in order to win back our brother, to keep the unity of God's flock. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1 says, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Rebuke sometimes is the easy part. Restoring takes much more. We not only need to have the courage to rebuke, to address the sin, we need to have the type of heart, the willingness to sacrifice the do whatever needs to take place in order to restore our brethren, in order to maintain the peace and the purity of God's people. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 18, it says, So far as depends on you, be at peace with all men. What that means, brethren, is if there is ever a broken relationship that is unmended, if there is ever a rift between me and my brother, that goes unresolved, may it never be because of any negligence on my part. May it never be because I was not willing to make whatever sacrifices were necessary to restore that relationship. As much as depends on me, whatever it takes, I need to be willing to mend that rift among us. First Corinthians chapter 6 in verse 7, it talks about those among the church at Corinth who were going to the courts against one another, filing lawsuits against one another. And notice what Paul says to them there in verse 7. He says, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? You know, this is very counterintuitive to our culture. Today in our culture, we make a, a very uh, large point of our rights. Well, these are my rights. This is what I deserve. What Paul is saying is you need to let go of your rights. Why not rather be defrauded? Why not rather be wronged? We need to be willing to accept wrong, to accept hurt, to accept loss in order that God's flock, in order that God's people, his body might stay healthy, that we might have peace among us. It doesn't matter what it takes. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, later on in verse 13, talking about meat sacrificed to idols, he says there, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again. I will sacrifice bacon in order that we can have meat. It doesn't matter what it takes. I, I, and here in this context, he says we have freedom. We have a right to eat these things. There's nothing wrong with this. 
But if this is causing my brother to stumble, if this is creating some rift between us, I need to be willing to do whatever it takes, sacrifice whatever resources I need to sacrifice, be willing to, to suspend my rights in order that we may have peace. Whatever sacrifice is necessary in order to have unity and peace among my brothers. Whatever personal sacrifice is required. But then lastly, as we see the story unfold, we see that Phineas and his men don't just explain why they're there and then get out their swords and start slaughtering. We see that they stop and they listen. In verse 26 and 27, it is explained to them here that this was not an altar built for sacrifice at all. This was built as a memorial. A memorial to indicate that even though this natural barrier divided them from the rest of God's people, that they were part of Israel, that they were part of God's people. And that is why they built this altar, as a sign uh, to their unity. And so because Phineas and his men were willing to confront this problem, because they were willing to listen, a great slaughter was avoided in this case. Now, very clearly from Numbers chapter 25, Phineas was willing to do whatever it took to maintain the purity of God's people. And yet we also see that he was willing to do whatever it takes to maintain the peace of God's people. You know, it's not wrong when we see things in our brethren that, that cause red flags. It's not wrong when we see something going on and we make a, a logical conclusion about some spiritual danger that our brethren are in. Uh, that's something that we're called to. We're called to watch out for one another. And yet, when we properly address problems such as that, we will confront that person individually. Uh, we will confront them directly about this problem. We will show them that we are willing to do whatever it takes to help them, uh, to restore them to God's people. And then we'll be willing to listen. And if that is the approach that we are willing to take, then we can maintain peace and purity among God's people. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 13 says, He who gives an answer before he hears, it is a folly and shame to him. Many times we want to, to rush in with our, our swords. We, we, we get stirred up, we get zealous, and we end up acting in ways that are counterproductive to the purpose of the Lord. We need to make sure that that zeal is properly directed. That we are ready first to listen, to understand the full situation, and then to take action accordingly. James 1 verse 19 says, Everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. You can be a great speaker, you can be very passionate for the Lord, but if you're not a great listener, you're not going to be very good at influencing and encouraging and building up people. Developing the ability to listen well is counseling and shepherding 101. Now that's ultimately what Job's friends failed to do. If we want to maintain peace among God's people, and restore those who are in sin, and help those who are weak. We must be ready to listen. Um, we need a passion for purity 
as Phineas had, but we also need a passion for peace because God is passionate for peace. Jesus desires unity among us. So what about us today? Would God say of us that we have his zeal within our hearts, that we have his passion within our hearts? How do we address sin in our lives and the lives of those around us? How do we address conflict among us? Let's address it the way that Phineas did, the way that God would have us to. Let's see sin the way that God sees it, see division the way that God sees it, and have the same desire for the well-being of our brethren and the well-being of his church that God himself has for his people. But it has to start with my own life. It has to start with me. And as we always come to the end of a lesson, we have to make the personal application. What do I need to do? What can I change? Because the invitation is not only for people who need to commit their lives to the Lord for the first time. The invitation is to each and every one of us to make application of the things that we have read within God's Word. How is what we have heard from God's word going to change us today? Does it mean that you need to commit your life to the Lord for the first time, that you need to allow him to put to death the old man of sin, to crucify him so that you can have life? By God's grace, you can be baptized, you can bury the old man of sin, and you can be raised to walk in newness of life. Maybe you've done that, and yet that old man of sin is still living. Maybe you need to bury him, kill him again by God's grace. Are you willing to do what is necessary to slay sin within your life? If there's anything that we can do to help you in that regard, please let us know at this point.